Hello and welcome back to the Catacomb Synod Basics where we go through the Augsburg Confession and other documents so we can discuss the distinctives of the Catacomb Synod, what makes us different than say the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, the Wisconsin Synod, uh, the AALC, etc. And we're going through the Augsburg Confession as of now. We will get into other documents later about it. But with things like the Augsburg Confession, it's important to see that we do apply them a little bit differently. We do see them a tad bit differently than a lot of modern Lutheran churches. And we want to get at the heart of being Lutherans that mean it. So as we continue with the Augsburg Confession, let's go ahead and start in Article 11 on Confession. It is taught among us that private absolution should be retained and not allowed to fall into disuse. However, in confession it is not necessary to enumerate all trespasses and sins, for this is impossible. Psalm 19 verse 12, who can discern his errors? Note here that Article 11 says, private absolution should be retained and not allowed to fall into disuse. We have a problem with that in most modern Lutheran churches. We are so used to the convenience of corporate confession and absolution that you don't really see private confession advertised, offered, encouraged for the benefit of the laity. Lutheran churches have unfortunately allowed it to fall into disuse. By and large, I know that there are exceptions to this rule, but the fact of the matter is we are far past the days of CFW Walter spending 96 hours a week, half of which are listening to private confession in his Midwestern church. Now, of course, a lot of pastors will say, oh, if somebody comes to me for private confession and absolution, ah, sure, I'll hear him, no problem. But it's not advertised, it's not encouraged, it's not exhorted for people to do private confession. What's one of the problems with this? If somebody has a sin that they committed and they forgot about it throughout the week, they go to church, they do corporate confession and absolution, and then later they remember that they sinned. They are going to forget that they heard the words of absolution. At least that's a likely situation. Suddenly feelings of guilt come back, suddenly they are worried about that particular sin, and they don't have an outlet for it. They are tempted to disbelieve the words of forgiveness pronounced upon them. And if we don't have a regular practice of private confession and absolution, even among the laity, by the way, might I add, pastors need to understand, part of the universal priesthood is everybody has the right to hear a confession. Pastors are just selected to be the guy that does that job for the most part. But I digress. If somebody is in that situation, he should have a place to go. And he should have a moment to remember something that might be that sinful monkey on the back that he wants to confess specifically. So the Catacomb Synod, with our free divine service that you can find as a PDF on verylutheran.biz under the Church Resources tab, we offer a moment of silence so people can meditate for a moment on their sinfulness, on the sins they have committed throughout the week, and they have an opportunity to confess it 
right then and there. Now this doesn't undo private confession with just the local deacon or with just a pastor, that is still retained. If you want to confess in private something that you are not comfortable confessing in the church, and you still feel some difficulties with your guilt, with your anxiety, after hearing the words of absolution in the divine service, private confession is retained between the deacon and the laity, or the pastor and the laity. And they have been instructed to liberally pronounce absolution for those who are terrified by their sins. Why is this? Because we do take Article 12 seriously, which says, It is taught among us that those who sin after baptism receive forgiveness of sin whenever they come to repentance, and absolution should not be denied them by the church. Properly speaking, true repentance is nothing else than to have contrition and sorrow, or terror on account of sin. And yet at the same time, to believe the gospel and absolution, namely that sin has been forgiven and grace has been obtained through Christ, and this faith will comfort the heart and again set it at rest. Amendment of life and the forsaking of sin should then follow. For these must be the fruits of repentance, as John says, bear fruit that befits repentance. Rejected here are those who teach that persons who have once become godly cannot fall again. Condemned, on the other hand, are the novations who denied absolution to such as had sinned after baptism. Rejected also are those who teach that forgiveness of sin is not obtained through faith, but through the satisfactions made by man. We must note, repentance does involve contrition. However, as Lutherans, we condemn enthusiasm and reliance on outward or inward displays of emotion. The terror or the sorrow one may have over their sin may not be a large and powerful emotion. And even if it is, they do not have to display it with a Methodist-esque version of crying, weeping, wailing over their sin. It is enough for them to go to confession, to speak of their sins, and to say, I am very sorry for this, I want to be forgiven. This, of course, suffices lest we fall into the enthusiastic trap of people wondering if they mean it or feel it enough. The reformers were not around for the invention of SSRIs and other emotionally numbing medications. Far be it from us to pronounce that such individuals who may not be able to feel contrition in an emotional sense over their sins are therefore damned because they cannot repent. Now, we in the Catacomb Synod do follow these words which say amendment of life and the forsaking of sin should then follow, for these must be the fruits of repentance, as John says, bear fruit that befits repentance, Matthew 3, verse 8. We do believe in the Lutheran doctrine of penance, not for earning one's place before God, not for restoring one's relationship with God. Penance properly comes after we have been restored by absolution, and it comes from a free heart. Therefore, pastors and deacons in the Catacomb Synod are instructed to, yes, 
give absolution first and maybe give some advice and some follow-up to make sure that the fruits worthy of repentance are brought forth in the believer. That is part of the role of a seal soga or soul carer. Our Lord intends for there to be follow-up, and we do hope that as Christians we hold each other accountable. In a loving way, of course. We don't want screaming matches to happen during the day-to-day -day life of a church. But that said, we must hear absolution first. And this is no controversy in Lutheranism for us to say, absolve first, then give healthful application of the third use of the law so that this individual's conscience may not be soothed by their deeds. After all, their conscience should be healed by the forgiveness of their sins. But one's conscience is indeed strengthened by the deeds which the Holy Spirit helps us to do. So, in union with the Reformers, we do condemn those who claim that once saved, always saved, there's no need for repentance in the first place. Those who teach that persons who have once become godly cannot fall again. We also deny the Novations who claim that, oh, you sinned after your baptism, therefore you are damned. And, of course, we reject the teaching of Rome, which claims that you have to have it satisfaction as a part of your contrition, repentance, and penitence. If before you receive absolution, you have to confess everything, and you have to make satisfaction, make it up to God. Well, we have concupiscence, and concupiscence is sin. If we were to sit there trying to confess the hundreds of sins we commit every day, if not the thousands of them, we would never be saved. And even if we were saved, if purgatory was a real place, well, turns out you could probably end up counting to infinity, and that's how much time you'd spend in purgatory. Nobody goes to heaven if we have to go out and make satisfaction for every single sin. Heaven forbid. Now, Article 13 is an interesting one on account of its odd pertinence today. It is very strange that we have to read this and actually apply it in our modern day, but such is how it works. Article 13, the use of the sacraments. It is taught among us that the sacraments were instituted not only to be signs by which people might be identified outwardly as Christians, but that they are signs and testimonies of God's will toward us for the purpose of awakening and strengthening our faith. For this reason, they require faith, and they are rightly used when they are received in faith and for the purpose of strengthening faith. And of course, the German translation adds, Our churches therefore condemn those who teach that the sacraments justify by the outward act and who do not teach that faith, which believes that sins are forgiven, is required in the use of the sacraments. An interesting thing about this article is the interaction between the sacraments and Lutheran monergism. Our Lord does teach us that he is the one to give us faith. That's Ephesians chapter 2. He grants us faith, and then, with the sacraments, as Article 13 says, uh, they are signs and testimonies of God's will toward us for the purpose of awakening and strengthening our faith. So, God bestows upon us faith, 
And then he has us go to the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper and absolution to strengthen our faith. Okay. But then it says, for this reason they require faith and they are rightly used when they are received in faith and for the purpose of strengthening faith. This sounds like circular logic on the part of the reformers, but it is not. God gives us faith through the means of grace, particularly the word preached, per Romans 10, verse 17. But then, after he has granted us faith and opened the eyes of our soul, so to speak, we are saved by that faith, then he bids us to receive the sacraments in faith, to go to the Lord's Supper, to receive the body and blood of our Lord, to remember our baptism and all of the promises that come with it, to rightly hear and trust the words of absolution, all of these strengthen the faith that we already had when we receive it in faith. What does all of this point to? We are monergists, but we are not necessarily hard determinists. The bondage of the will notwithstanding, it is incredibly valuable as a book, but when God regenerates us, by faith, he grants it through the means of grace, and he washes us clean in the waters of our baptism, we have a bestowal of faith, which then must be active. Faith does stuff. Faith works. That's not controversial. At least it shouldn't be. Luther says as much in his commentary on the book of Romans. But we are supposed to take that faith and then actively go and say, I receive the sacraments, believing that they are true. I am united to Christ in my baptism. Christ is here in, with, and under the bread and the wine, with his body and blood. Yes, those words of forgiveness, that is the forgiveness of God granted to me. One of our guys in the deacon chat referred to this as a virtuous cycle. I love that. Not a vicious cycle a virtuous cycle. God gives you faith, then he tells you to use your faith or hold to your faith to receive the sacraments which thereby strengthen your faith. He continues getting you closer to him and bringing you close to him. But it has to be by faith. We deny ex opere operato or the belief that the sacraments justify by the outward act and those who teach that faith isn't really a part of it, at least not rightly anyway. Lutherans have accidentally fallen into the ex opere operato trap, but not in that they hold, as the Roman Catholic Church has, to ex opere operato properly. What do I mean by this? Well, false teaching travels. An Arian who denies that Jesus Christ is God is going to eventually deny the full extent of the atonement. He will deny faith alone. Almost universally, every Aryan sect, including the modern Jehovah's Witnesses, deny sola fide. Oftentimes, they deny the inspiration of the scriptures because the scriptures don't teach Arianism the way that they would like it to, so they monkey with the text until it says what they want. I regret to inform everybody listening but heresy has legs and it loves to travel. Such is the case with ex opere operato. For example, 
in the evangelical sphere, I'm sure we have all met that individual who says, well, I said the sinner's prayer, therefore I'm going to heaven. Wait, what? <laughs> Does saying a prayer 26, 28 years ago necessarily automatically mean that this prayer acted as such a powerful sacrament that you're going to heaven even if you don't believe in Christ? Even if you have no fruits of your faith, there's no change of your life, you don't go to church, you don't receive the sacraments, you don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, but you said that sinner's prayer, so you're pretty sure you're in. Well, that's ex opere operato, manifesting in a traveled form. It's not touching on the sacraments, but it's treating a specific simplistic prayer as though, well, ex opere operato, from the work performed. The heresy had legs, and it has gone into the Lutheran Church more than once in history, may I remind you. The Danish Church, infamously, in their battles with Soren Kierkegaard, held to such high liturgy that they honestly acted as though the Christian life consisted merely of going to church, because the liturgy would do its job, let it do its thing, and the rest of your Christian life doesn't quite matter. This is where we get Hans Nielsen Hage in his battles with the Church of Norway, which had him imprisoned for trying to get people to be Lutherans that mean it. Formalism is a form of ex opere operato. It kills faith. It kills earnestness in the Christian heart. Because if everything is taken care of with the rites and rituals, regardless of whether you are even paying attention to the word preached right there in your ears, you are holding to ex opere operato. You're saying that, oh, the, the liturgy will take care of it for me. This also manifests in what's called radical Lutheranism, the Lutheranism of uh, Gerhard Furda and Ellert and everybody else who holds to the law gospel dynamic as sufficient in and of itself. They don't hold to orthodoxy in the faith, so they don't know exactly what people are supposed to be having faith in, or what the contents of the gospel are even supposed to be, but so long as the law condemns and the gospel makes us feel better, suddenly you have a recipe for people to have faith. Great, and they're saved by their faith, well, saved through their faith, surely, justified by faith alone, but now they believe it is justified by faith in faith. The specifics of the gospel and what we are supposed to do as Christians or what we're even supposed to really believe doesn't matter so long as every pastor in every Lutheran church preaches the exact same sermon every Sunday just worded differently. And yes, that really is how it is, by the way. If you are told only preach the law, then preach the gospel, every single sermon becomes, you suck, but God loves you anyway. That's it. They don't even preach Christ crucified for the forgiveness of our sins because Forda did not believe it that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. And unfortunately, much of that has creeped into even the most conservative of confessional Lutheran churches, where people deny the third use of the law, even though that's in the confessions. They deny preaching that actually means something other than you suck but God loves you. They hold to a stale dying version of Christianity, let alone Lutheran Christianity. And so we reject that 
on the grounds that it is a form of ex opere operato. They treat law and gospel preaching as a sacrament which justifies by the outward act. It does not teach a faith which believes that sins are forgiven. Forda denied this. So, while there are other grounds for rejecting radical Lutheranism as well, we're going to say that this is an odd, very strange comeback of a very old heresy. Moving along to what I believe to be one of the most crucial articles in the Augsburg Confession for understanding the Catacomb Synod is Article 14, Order in the Church. It is taught among us that nobody should publicly teach or preach or administer the sacraments in the church without a regular call. Rite vocatus. A man must receive the immediate call from our Lord and then the immediate call from the church, which verifies the immediate call. However, there is a big difference in how the Catacomb Synod of Lutherans is going to see this article compared to how many confessional Lutheran teachers are presenting it today. If you take a look at Article 14 of the Apology to the Augsburg Confession, the Reformers write this, In this issue our consciences are clear, and we dare not approve the cruelty of those who persecute this teaching, for we know that our confession is true, godly, and Catholic. We know that the Church is present among those who rightly teach the Word of God and rightly administer the sacraments. It is not present among those who seek to destroy the Word of God with their edicts, who even butcher anyone who teaches what is right and true, though the canons themselves are gentler with those who violate them. Furthermore, we want at this point to declare our willingness to keep the ecclesiastical and canonical polity, provided that the bishops stop raging against our churches. This willingness will be our defense, both before God and among all nations, present and future, against the charge that we have undermined the authority of the bishops. Thus men may read that despite our protest against the unjust cruelty of the bishops, we could not obtain justice. Melanchthon and friends are saying that the Lutherans are not trying to start their own church. They're not just ordaining people willy-nilly. They are not founding an anarchic church, so to speak. And they were even willing to stick with the Roman structure and have bishops that you had to listen to provided that the bishops weren't going against the word of God. But so long as the actions and teachings of the bishops demonstrate that they're not part of the real church, well, you got to do something. And that means having a regular call, still having a structured way of going about it through the immediate, immediate call. That's all well and good. Most Lutheran churches have completely forgotten that last part where, listen, if you're not teaching properly, you're not part of the church. Your authority is not legitimate. To the contrary, many Lutheran pastors that I've interacted with, seen, and heard from are livid at the idea that their office is anything other than being a king of a parish. You see, rite vocatus means you have to have a regular call, but that includes a call from God. And if you are called by God, then you are clearly God's anointed one over that congregation. And that means that you should be shielded from, well, any criticism at all, really. They might not say that that's how it is, 
but a lot of these pastors are barred by various bylaws from criticizing each other in public or questioning each other because how dare you question God's anointed. Rite Vocatus has been twisted and marred into a justification of the same kind of episcopal tyranny that Rome inflicted on Lutherans. If you tell laity that they should hold their pastor accountable for teaching right doctrine and doing his job of loving the laity and serving them, then you will be told that you are a reviler of the brethren, a slanderer, second only to the devil himself, and you must repent for the sake of your soul. Such it is, at least in my experience, when I called fellow pastors to be accountable to their congregation and to listen to the laity whenever the laity gave them questions, whenever they objected to something, whenever they even got testy or angry or even polemical against them, a pastor must be humble and willing to listen. Because if you are not humble in your office, you will become a tyrant. Unfortunately, in our day and age, the subversion of Lutheran churches takes place chiefly with the enabling of a bad understanding of Rite Vocatus, one which unduly lifts up pastors and sends many of them to hell. Because St. James tells us in his epistle that one who is teaching is going to be subject to a stricter judgment. Thus, if a Christian, laity or otherwise, accuses you of being wrong in public, you should take that as a compliment. That is an opportunity for you to either demonstrate that you are correct, teaching your Christian brothers and sisters, or to be corrected so that you do not have a harsher judgment. So long as Rite Vocatus is presented as the pastor being a king of a parish, the pope in miniature, who can only be deposed or disciplined by others in the clerical office, we are going to have great and terrible subversion in our churches. Pastors must be held accountable by their laity. They are to work the hardest in that church to show love to their brethren. They are to do their best to answer any accusation or disagreement, speaking the truth in love, especially if they are correct. They should be humble. Even if somebody comes to us publicly with angry polemics at us, accusing us of being woke or something, or even denying that we are Christian, we should answer humbly because we are servants. We are bondservants first of our Lord Christ who died for us and has brought us into his service. We are servants second of the laity who rely on us for word and sacrament. Thus deacons are charged in the catacomb synod with permitting the questions and objections of the laity. Now, yes, a deacon does have authority over this house church. And yes, as director of the Very Lutheran Project, I do have the authority to teach. And in my own house church, I have the authority to administer the sacraments. In that sense, a teacher of the church does have something of a final word on various doctrinal matters but not without first submitting himself to the accountability of the local congregation, which is the right form of the kingdom of God here on earth. 
And even if it's a stranger coming to us, whether on social media or some other platform attacking us, trying to get our attention, well, we should love our enemies. And that means being humble enough to say, I think you're wrong here in what you're saying about me. I think you're wrong there, or, oh, I hadn't noticed that before. I think I'll make some modifications to what I was saying. Rather than huffing and puffing and throwing a fit and reaching for our fainting couch, as these veritable babies have been doing in Lutheran churches of today. That must be rejected, and accordingly, the Catacomb Synod rejects it. But that said, we still have the matter of churches and church usages, which we will get into next week as we explore more from the Augsburg Confession from the Article 15 onward. Our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and Amen.